So we come then in our study through the Westminster Confession of Faith to that chapter 20, which is of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And so in terms of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we are now uh, well and truly in the area of, of duty, as it were. Uh, if we think of that excellent summary of, of what God has revealed in his word that we find in the Shorter Catechism, uh, that God uh, reveals in, in his word what we're to believe concerning him and what duty he requires of us. Uh, that's in, in question three. And uh, so in the confession so far, really up to chapter 18 particularly, there has been what well, this is this is who God is, and this is these are the things that are to be believed concerning God, concerning Christ, uh, concerning ourselves in relation to God and Christ, uh, that we might be saved, and then the benefits of salvation, those things that are found in Christ. And uh, then in chapter 19, which we considered last uh, last time, concerning God's law, uh, God's law being mentioned many times already through the confession and then so we have that that uh, teaching in terms of what is meant by God's law and distinctions there and the uses of the law and then now in terms of the confession and really it, it in a sense of follows the same pattern as the catechisms uh, and and not only the Westminster confession and catechisms they follow this pattern but also other other catechisms and, and documents from the time of the Reformation too there's an, there's an order here what there's faith first and then the working out of that faith in works. And as in the, in the catechism, and children, you can think of this also in terms of wherever you're up to in learning, but in terms of that, that order of things, that there's those things uh, that are to be believed concerning God, then there's uh, what we're to do that's pleasing to God. So the Ten Commandments, and then there's the things as regards worship particularly uh, in, in terms of the church, in terms of the sacraments, in terms of prayer, particularly in terms of the, the uh, confession, uh, so the catechisms. In terms of the confession, we've got a similar structure. So we've had those things to be believed concerning God. And then now in, in this section, really up to chapter 24, there's, it's not all of the Ten Commandments, but there's a number of key matters concerning particular commandments in chapters 21 through 24, particular areas of obedience. And then... We enter into the area of the church, what is the church and the worship of God, the sacraments uh, and uh, the discipline of the church, and then the end things of the, the judgment to come and, and so on. Well, sort of between uh, chapter 19 about the law and chapter 20, there are a little bit of a, a hinge as we uh, in the confession as we come to consider particular things in the law of God, particular duties that God requires. Uh, in chapter 20, we're, we're given a summary, in a sense, of what Christ has done for us and what Christ does for believers. Uh, and then also uh, of going forward in terms of how we're to live as his people, what does that look like in terms of us in relation to God and his law uh, and in relation to other other authorities that are, are on the earth. So we have this... this uh, matter of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And these things, in a way that we, can, we distinguish them, but they belong, they belong together. So there are four sections uh, in, in this chapter, and 
want to basically, but, but I want to look at them in five points. But uh, the first section really divides in two. So I want to have, we'll, we'll have a, uh, 1A and 1B, and then we'll have 2, 3, and 4, so that the points line up with the sections. Hopefully that just, otherwise, it, uh, yeah, as I was looking at it, it would be confusing. So firstly we have, and just to run through them, firstly there's the matter of liberty for believers, then, uh, that's 1A, then 1B, liberty for New Testament believers. Then secondly, there's liberty and God's word. Then liberty, thirdly, and obedience to God. And then fourthly, liberty and obedience to human authority. And uh, so as, as at other times, I'll be going through or read it and then uh, you know, give, give some brief explanation and read some of the proofs. I hope you've had opportunity for yourselves and your families to be able to uh, do that as well. Uh, that will certainly help in terms of understanding. So the firstly then, 1A, liberty for believers. So we read there, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of a slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. So I'll just stop there. That's halfway through or a bit over halfway, but it's a halfway point in this, in this section. So there's a summary there of what it is to be free in Christ. This is the liberty, the freedom that Christ has purchased in uh, our salvation. And, and already the, the confession in terms of this uh, connected, interconnected system of doctrine, already in the different chapters there's been mention of liberty and freedom in salvation. Our sinful wills by nature, dead in trespasses and sins and inclined only to evil, but our, our sinful wills set free that we might, uh, when we're born again, that we might will and do what is good. Uh, that we've been set free from the curse of the law, uh, from the power of sin and so on. One of the, uh, in, in terms of understanding why we need to be set free. Uh, if we look back in, in chapter 9, and there, and we've considered these in, in some detail, obviously, but in chapter 9 and section 4, after describing what, what our situation is as sinners, uh, dead in trespasses and sins, at enmity with God, blind and ignorant and so on, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly, nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. So but there's that freedom that we have in Christ. We continue as sinners in this world, but we've been set free. Uh, uh, that, uh, that we might want to do what is good and be able to, to do that. And 
Then in describing, so this, that redemption, that salvation, that, that Christ is, uh, that work that he has done, it's referred to here as, as again, a purchase. Remember, we've, uh, I've mentioned recently that that language of redemption, being bought back, being uh, purchased. And another thing of redemption, another aspect of redemption is being set free. So a slave set free, being redeemed. So the price has been paid for that slave, but also they've been set free from bondage to, uh, and slavery to whoever they were enslaved to. And so this, then, then in, in the confession, there's this whole list of different aspects of what this means to be set free. And, and many of the different benefits of redemption are summed up under this heading of, of freedom, of what Christ has purchased. And, and just to, again, underline from, from the Bible that Christ has redeemed a people, he has purchased a people, and there's freedom there. So in, in the proofs, Titus 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Uh, also in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Another passage, and that's not in the proofs there, but, but uh, where we see also this language of being set free by Christ uh, and set free from bondage is in John chapter 8. I'm going to read a few verses there. You might wish to turn it up. John chapter 8, verse 33 to 36. And here is Christ speaking to the Jews, and uh, they thought they were free. Listen to what they say. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed. And we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And as he goes on, he shows them that even though Abraham was their father, according to the flesh, they were descended from Abraham, they showed themselves not to be his true children because they hated Christ and showed that they hated God. And they were children of the devil. They were in bondage to sin. They were servants of sin, living in sin. But Christ came that they would be free, that they would be truly free. And so in this, if you... Uh, in terms of confession, there's these many different things then uh, uh, listed in terms of what Christ, uh, these list of these freedoms, and they're in groups. If you have the, the words in front of you, or uh, it's uh, you can see in, in a sense divisions or, or, or groups, things grouped together, these blessings grouped together by where the semicolons uh, sit. So uh, we see that. Uh, this, this uh, liberty consists in their freedom from, and then three things are mentioned, and then, and in their being delivered from, and then another, uh, what, six, six things there, seven rather, and then as also in their free access to God, uh, and so on. There's another number of things mentioned. And generally speaking, we have... Uh, 
freedom described uh, in terms of justification. So, and, and with these statements, that uh, their liberty consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. The, these things belong to justification, means set free uh, from these things. Uh, and also then in terms of sanctification, that, that work where, where God uh, takes us and changes us from being sinful and polluted and transforming us to make us like, like Jesus. Uh, so the next set, and then they're being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. And, and then uh, in terms of a, a number of things mentioned where there's freedom from, uh, in, in terms of God's providence and, and looking to the end. So from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation. Now I just want to mention, uh, I think we can understand that, that in terms of death and, and the grave and and hell, there's freedom from those things in Christ, salvation from those things. What about the evil of afflictions? What does that mean? Because there's no promise in, in the Bible that, uh, that the believer is set free from having any hard or, or sad or bad things happen to them in this life. But no, what it, what it means there, and uh, perhaps even just looking at a couple of the proofs, is that those afflictions... Uh, the afflictions that come to the believer are not for evil. They're for good. They, they come from their, father, their, their heavenly Father's hand. And they come uh, in his wisdom. And it might be in chastisement, but that is in love. And so, so in Romans 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So that the believer can say with David in Psalm 119, 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. So the evil of afflictions are set free from the evil of afflictions. But then also uh, there's uh, the last uh, number of benefits listed here have to do with, we see them related to adoption. So also in their free access to God, they yield in obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but with a childlike love and willing mind. And this freedom is for all. This, this freedom is for all those who trust in Christ and all those who have trusted in Christ uh, and, whether that, uh, and, and will trust in Christ. The confession says, all which are common also to believers under the law. So these things, uh, whether it be from uh, Adam and Eve repenting in the garden uh, through to uh, John the Baptist, the very last of the, the old, and whoever the very last of the Old Testament believers, uh, and, and through to the very end of time, these things describe uh, those who believe on Christ, that freedom that they have. And one of the, the, the many places we could go to see this continuity through the whole of the scriptures in terms of salvation, in terms of the Saviour, salvation, the way of salvation. We look in Galatians 3 verse 9. Where, uh, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Uh, and we can look in Romans 4. We see David and, and uh, Abraham and David saved, justified by faith in Christ. The Christ who was to come. Uh, and that Galatians 3. Uh, those who believe now 
uh, that are following after Abraham. He looked forward to the Christ to come. We look back to the Christ who has come. So, there's this wonderful description, so much to meditate upon there, on liberty in Christ. That freedom that we have in Jesus Christ through faith in him. But then 1B, point 1B, liberty for New Testament believers. So all these things, common to believers under the law, uh, as well as under the gospel. But then the confession continues. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Uh, And so there is more. So these things uh, that have been said uh, of, of what is found in Christ... That is, that is true of all believers in all times, Old and New Testament. And yet, under the New Testament, that's now. Uh, Christ having come and having, having given himself and, and, being, and, and unto death on the cross, being raised and being ascended into heaven, having given his spirit, there is greater blessing available and, and, and great, a greater measure of freedom for believers now. Uh, it's important to understand that when we're talking of, and, and also, and, and the, the language here is careful, uh, that when we're talking about uh, the difference between the, uh, the freedom of believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're not talking about a difference in kind. It's not a different kind of freedom, as if there's sort of a, a lower kind of freedom for, that was there for the believers in the Old Testament, but it's a, it's a, it's a difference in a better kind of freedom now uh, in the New Testament. But rather it's a difference of degree. So not a different type of freedom, but it's about more or less freedom. Uh, the, the language here, it's the liberty of Christians under the New Testament is further enlarged. It's further enlarged. And there are three aspects to that. The first is that the ceremonial law is finished. That yoke, that, that yoke has been taken away. Christ has fulfilled it and Abrogated. He's done away with it, with his own sacrifice. Uh, and uh, this is what the book of Hebrews spends so much time on. And uh, speaks of a yoke there. And that's the language of the Bible in Acts 15 verse 10. Uh, Peter, he, he spoke to the believers, to the council in Jerusalem. And he said, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So they were saved. So so he's saying, anyone who has been saved has been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This yoke, this yoke has now passed. Uh, The yoke. And think of the, the heavy timber or iron or even stone yoke across the shoulders of the horses, the oxen, pulling the plough, pulling uh, the cart, uh, pulling the load, uh, that burden, but that has been taken away. So there's a freedom. We don't have to give attention to all different types of, can we eat this animal, or, can, or, or uh, are we allowed to eat this animal, or 
uh, are we not? Uh, what uh, are we allowed to touch that thing or not? Uh, are we clean or unclean from this sore, this wound that I have, this blood flow, this sickness, whatever it is, that is gone. That is gone. So we're free from that. But also, there is greater, but there is also a greater freedom, greater measure of freedom in terms of prayer. So it says, and greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. Now, when we think of this, so we can look in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're to understand that believers in all ages have been, uh, have been able to call upon God at any time and in any place. In the Old Testament, they didn't have to wait to pray. Uh, they didn't have to... Uh, they, it wasn't that the only place they could pray was in the temple. Uh, that was where the worship of God and the public worship of God happened and there were the priests and all those layers between God and the worshipper. But, but the, any believer could call upon God from wherever they were. They could cry unto God from the ends of the earth, as the psalm says. And yet, in the New Testament, there has been, there is greater access to God. And we can come with greater boldness in Christ. And so Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it's a new and living way. And there is greater access because there's greater knowledge. The Christ who has promised, the Saviour who has promised, he's come. We, we have seen him. Uh, we have seen his glory through the testimony of the apostles. We have seen God in his face, uh, in uh, his ministry as he went about on the earth. We, we've seen God in a way that, that uh, he had not been seen and known. And, and his work of, uh, of salvation, his work of intercession, his we know that so much more clearly. And so there's reasons for great boldness in coming to God in prayer. So, so it speaks of greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and also in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. The Holy Spirit has been working in all ages to regenerate sinners. Wherever there has been faith in God, that is the work of the Spirit. Because of ourselves, we are darkness and we are unbelief and enmity against God. So wherever there was faith, even from the beginning, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. And wherever there's been understanding of God's Word, there is the Spirit. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. There's David. He's asking that God would instruct him and that is by the Holy Spirit. Wherever there's been sanctification and holiness, it's by the spirit of holiness. And yet that, there is that sense that the Bible speaks of, that the spirit was 
poured out after Christ had gone up to heaven. And so that there is now a greater, greater, well, as it says, fuller communications of the Spirit. We look at what Jesus, and Jesus speaks of, uh, in, in, in John's Gospel, John chapter 7, in verse, in verse 37 to 39, we read, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, that they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit was yet to be come in this sense, and yet we look in, look in the Old Testament Scriptures and we see the Spirit coming upon men. We see the Spirit giving life. We see the Spirit renewing and strengthening and so on. But in the Old Testament, uh, there were few men in that sense, a few prophets, a few kings who were filled with the Spirit who are particularly said to be filled with the Spirit, coming to the New Testament and after Pentecost, and we, we find the Spirit coming down. And uh, certainly in those early, early times, you know, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your uh, old men shall dream dreams, and so on. It was, a, it was a widespreadness of these things. But there's something... Just in finishing this section, so we think of liberty for New Testament believers. It mentions uh, that you know, there's, there's greater boldness of access, fuller communications of the Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. And that word ordinarily. See, there's a sense in terms of when we, as we, as we consider what God has done, Jesus Christ. And in terms of Christ coming and the change that, that, that has come with Christ coming into the world, the fulfilment of all the promises, the, the meanest, the lowest, the weakest believer in the New Testament, in the New Testament church after Christ, is in a position historically, and, but also redemptively, of far greater privilege than any of the believers in the Old Testament, even the most holy, the most, uh, the, the most godly, because they've come after Christ. And, and that's why you know, Jesus says of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist, and yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And, and so there's this great privilege that even the, the lowest, the lowliest of believers have as we consider, and we can see that here in terms of greater, we don't have the ceremonies, greater access, fuller communications of the Spirit of God. And that's true in that, in that overall sense. But yet there is no, ordinarily, this might be the case. But far be it from us to, to think that, uh, to compare ourselves in that sense positively or boastfully to the Old Testament saints? Isn't there, in spite of their lack of knowledge, 
uh, the, in spite of being in the shadows, don't we have much to learn from Moses and David and Abraham and Asaph and uh, so many of the, uh, the Old Testament saints in terms of how they approach God, in terms of their love for God, in terms of what use they made of the access they had to God and with the limited knowledge, and yet that we so often, even though we have far greater, we, we have the light of day, yet how little we use of that. So the comparison is historically, redemptively, and yet we, we to be realising society, we're not better than them. We, we have more, and we see we're expected more. Or more is expected of us too. But then we come uh, to our second, to, uh, second point. We've had one A and one B, now point two. And that liberty and God's word. <clears throat> and we come in a sense to that matter of liberty of conscience. So God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So especially here then we come, in a sense moving on from that liberty that we have in Christ, to the matter of the conscience and the liberty of the conscience, the freedom of the conscience before God. I just want to... uh, What is the conscience? What what are we talking about when we talk about the conscience? Well, the conscience is, is that testimony that is within each person, that God has put in each person, a testimony of... What is right and wrong of God's moral law? The, the, the conscience God has put in us, uh, in our heart, that we might uh, have a witness uh, to, uh, to what is right and what is wrong. And uh, when we, we look in Romans chapter 2, in Romans chapter 2, and in verse 14 and 15, uh, we see this. So if we read from verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And <clears throat> so the conscience, and as we see here, so it's the conscience is God has put a, given a conscience to men, each and every person, and it is his law put in their hearts. And we know, we go back to the beginning, this is the same as, uh, this is part of what it means to bear the image of God. That God has put his image in us. He said, this is what I am like. This is what you are to be like. And so, uh, at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, that uh, 
that, that, that law, that, that conscience was right. It was perfect in terms of uh, they, they did what was right and their conscience said, you are doing what is right each and every time. And as soon as they did what was wrong, their conscience accused them that is wrong. Now the problem is today, because we have sinned in Adam and, and, uh, and just continue to sin, that our consciences have become uh, distorted, they've become misinformed. And so whereas uh, when we're going along in life and we, we do something, our conscience, as God created us, would say, yes, that is right. And if we do something wrong, our conscience would say, that, that is wrong. But because sin uh, sears our conscience, it causes our conscience to be calloused and, and hardened. The Bible talks about sin, those with defiled consciences. Like, uh, like there's, a there's a pool of water and it's been defiled, it's had mud and rubbish put into it. Uh, it speaks of our consciences it describes our consciences as being misinformed. And so that it's no longer the case. Uh, so, so there'll be those times when, uh, when we as sinners are doing what is wrong and our conscience is saying, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Or, and, and, and it's pushing us in that way apart from God. And so our conscience isn't perfectly reflecting God's law. And so that, that's why our, we're not, the Bible says, don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. Your heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So God's given us a conscience. That conscience we're to follow. But we're to understand our conscience can be wrong. So what's the solution? The solution is to, to seek God's mercy in Christ, but also to submit our conscience to the law of God. Because God is the law of the Lord of the conscience. God alone. Our conscience must be informed by and corrected by and subjected to God's word. And so that's the, the, the point here. And remember, as I said at the beginning, we're coming to some particular parts of God's law. Because we need, by creation, our conscience perfectly reflected what, what the Ten Commandments say. But because we sin and our conscience is defiled, it doesn't. And so we need to bring our conscience to God's law to be uh, informed and corrected by it. And some key principles we learn here in terms of our conscience, and that is that our conscience and the conscience of every individual, believer and non-believer, is directly accountable to God. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And it's a reminder that each and every one of us will answer to him. And uh, some scriptures there, James 4 verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? So there's a warning against being, making yourself the Lord of someone else's conscience. And then in Romans 14 4, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Obviously there's a place for talking to one another and to others about what is true and what is right, and we have responsibilities. And we'll come to some of that in a moment. But ultimately we're to remember each one will answer to God. And particularly for believers, to his own master. 
who standeth or falleth. Now if we're accountable to God, we're to be informed by what God has said, and that's his word. And so then we come to, so the conscience under God, God has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Rather, our conscience is to be bound by the word of God. We're not bound to what men say and command. We're bound to what God says and commands. And there's two areas of things that are mentioned here. So we're free. It's, it, our consciences are free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word. So if there's anything that anyone says, believe this or do that, and it's contrary to God's word, as in, they're saying, that, uh, do this thing, and God says, don't do this thing, you're not to listen to them. You're not bound by what they say. Whoever they are, you're not bound by it. Some well-known scriptures, Acts 4, verse 19, Peter and John, before the Jewish Council, Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. And, and the obvious answer is what well, no, it's not right to listen to God, uh, listen to them rather than God. We ought to listen to God. And Acts 5, verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So anything contrary to God's word, we are not bound to keep it. But then also in matters of faith or worship, we're not bound to keep anything beside God's word. So God has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of, of faith and worship. So when it comes to what we're to believe about God, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to how God would be worshipped, we are bound only to what God has revealed and to nothing else. Not to add to his command or take from it. particular scripture Mentioned here, Matthew 15, verse 9, that in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's vain worship. It's false worship. When you take as your doctrine what men have commanded, it is vain. It is not pleasing to God. Look also in Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23. Wherefore, if he be dead with Christ... From the rudiments of the world, wise though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship, and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. <clears throat> See, when, when, uh, when things are added to God's commands in terms of worship, it might have a, a form of wisdom. It might look like it's a good thing. Oh, well, that's a good idea. But it's will worship. It's not 
what is pleasing to God. It's being added by men. And there's much more on this. This is, uh, this is when we speak of the regulative principle of worship, that, or the biblical uh, principle of worship, that God will be worshipped uh, according to His command in, in no other way. And uh, that, that's in the next chapter of the Confession, where we particularly look at those things. Now, <clears throat> the Confession continues then, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So it's so important that we have God's word as the standard. Anything contrary to God's word in any area of life, we are free from it. There's no obligation. And when it comes to matters of doctrine and matters of worship, as soon as someone adds their own ideas to what God has said, if it's like, well, you know, we want to think these kind of things about God. He hasn't really revealed that to us, but, but that, that's nice. Or that, that's, uh, that, that'll help people understand it. Or we want to worship God this way or that way. <coughs> Then not only if, if if we if we go in if we take those doctrines of men as our commandments, not only are we disobeying God, but we're also betraying, as it says, true liberty of conscience. We're we're binding our conscience to someone else than God. And it's the same when it speaks of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience. When anyone in authority says, it's okay, you don't understand, just believe me. Just do what I say. Just believe the doctrine because I said it. I'm the priest. I'm the pope. I'm the minister. I'm the whatever. Just believe it because I say it and I know. That's an implicit faith. Or just obey me because I know. That's destroying liberty of conscience. It's destroying reason, the confession says. Because God's given us minds that we are to be understanding. uh, That we would obey willingly and from the heart. God alone is worthy of absolute obedience. It's right for us to see what God says. And not understand it and yet believe it because God says it. It's right for us to see God's command and and not perhaps understand all the whys and wherefores and yet obey because that's God's right. But only for him because our conscience is bound to him. And so that's why it's so important that those who are in authority don't command anything contrary to God's word. And that's why it's... uh, For for anyone in authority, that's why it's so important important for those in authority in the church when it comes to doctrine and worship to teach only what's in the word of God to command in terms of this is what we're going to do in worship, this is what we're going to sing this is uh, how we're going to proceed what, only what is commanded by God and why it's so important for those under authority to live with an open Bible to prove all things by the word of God and this is where where the reformers spoke of, and we 
we uh, need to speak of the right and necessity of private judgment. We're not to be just switching our minds off and just following the leader. We're to be searching the scriptures to see what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. Searching the scriptures to see whether those things we hear are true. Let's move on then. Number three, liberty and obedience to God. And <clears throat> they, who, they who upon a pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, that is, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And so the, the point is here, the freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom to obey God, to serve God. It's not a freedom to sin. And, and these words are very much directed against uh, that, that error, that heresy of antinomianism, which means to be against the law of God. Uh, and, and there's this attitude, I am free and, and I'm forgiven so that I can live how I want. It doesn't matter because, because I've been saved. No, the Bible is so clear. You are free to do what God wants, not what you want. Everyone, and and there's this teaching. Jesus spoke of it to the Jews. Paul speaks of it in Romans. And he says, everyone is serving someone. You're always serving someone. You're, 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 You're in bondage to someone. The question is, are you in bondage to sin or in bondage to God? Are you in bondage to your own lusts? And to, and, and to Satan, being led about by him, or are you in bondage, a bondservant of God? And uh, in Galatians 5, where we read, we, we see that great difference between the, the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And there's this conflict within the believer. In, in, in Romans 6, Paul speaks of these things. Romans 6, verse 14 to 18, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. So we're not, uh, that, that, you know, you're not under law but under grace. That's not so that we can do what we want. That's so that we can serve God in holiness and righteousness to his glory. So obedience to God, that's what we're saved for. But also then in, in number four, Liberty and obedience to human authority. Yeah, there's a lot in this one. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it and just make a couple of comments. And, and the confession does come back to these things in, in, in some future chapters, later chapters. And because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath pur- purchased are not intended by God to destroy but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, 
whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. I'll just stop there. So being free in Christ and and having our consciences, uh, uh, knowing that our consciences are, are, are under God and we answer to God, means that we are free from living in sin. We've been saved from sin, not to live in it, but to live holy. And we are set free from, from having to obey the unlawful commands of men. Because we can say, no, God wants me to do something else. But this doesn't do away with human authority. No, because God has ordained powers, authorities. He's ordained them in the family, in the church, in the nation or in society. And also, we can think of the workplace and so on in regard to those things. But there's no contradiction there. God doesn't... Yes, the scriptures speak of the conscience and how we are answering to God, each and every one of us. But he also has ordained authorities in these different areas of of life. And it's right that when we receive a command from any authority, that we take it to the word of God. If it contradicts what God says, then we're not bound to keep that. In in fact, we're bound to obey God rather than men. And it's right then to oppose, and just to use the language of the confession here, it's right to oppose any unlawful power. It's right to oppose any unlawful exercise of power. To oppose any unlawful commands. But, not all authorities and powers are unlawful. There are unlawful powers. And there are those, though they are sinners, who lawfully exercise that power. And there are, from human authorities, lawful commands. Commands that uh, (coughs) match up with what God says and are within the bounds of the of the rule that God has given to that authority. And so, Romans 13 would be a classic passage we could go to to consider these things. We won't now. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. You see, Paul in Romans, he speaks of for conscience sake, obeying those who have the, the rule over you, the powers that be. But uh, here notice how Peter speaks of as free. You've been set free, but it's not to serve yourselves and not to do whatever you want, not for maliciousness, but as the servants of God. So there are lawful authorities, and the con- that we have a conscience that answers to God doesn't mean that there's no such thing as authority and we can just do away with it all and each to their own, each do what is right in his own eyes. No, God has set authorities there. We do have a right, honour and respect, even as we recognise that they are subordinate to the word of God. The second section, the second part of this section is is somewhat controversial. I'll read it, a couple of brief comments and and that's it. So in terms of these authorities, 
uh, and those, speaks of those who oppose lawful authorities, the lawful exercise of it. They resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity or concerning, oh, sorry, whether concerning faith, worship or conversation or to the power of godliness or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has ordained or has established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. And so, <clears throat> now, so it said those who would resist those powers and would do so in such a way as to cause scandal, as to cause disturbance. It speaks of just being destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church. They may be uh, dealt with by the authorities that God has set in the church and in the state. Now obviously these things are controversial uh, whichever, you know, that, that's all controversial today because, because we live in an anti-authoritarian age and who is anyone to say to me what I can or can't believe or say or do? I want to do, I want to do everything my way. But there's a couple of things to notice here and, and, and we, we have to, under, there are certainly things here that are in direct opposition to what, to what many Christians also believe, also in terms of the magistrate. But there's... Uh, notice here, uh, firstly, it mentions the censures of the church and then it mentions the power of the magistrate. So these are different things. The church is not given the sword. The church is not given a sword to execute. The church deals by way of censure, by way of discipline, by way of uh, that, that, uh, that the scriptures describe as dealing with scandals. The, sword, the state has the sword. And the other thing to notice is that the, the, the civil magistrate does have a role in regard to the first table of the law, in regard to the, uh, dealing with idolatry, in regard to dealing with false worship, in regard to dealing with blasphemy, in regard to dealing with the Sabbath. But its role is not to be a thought police in that sense, or to establish a thought police. The, the role... When we think of these commandments, we all sin against God in many ways. And, and as regards our, our sinful even thoughts, God is the one that will answer to for our sinful thoughts. Uh, as regards in the church when there's scandal by professing Christians, the church deals with that by way of discipline. When these sins become crimes, when they are a public, disorderly, uh, affecting others, as, as it says, destructive to external peace and order, that is when the state has a place. So we, we're talking about public uh, acts of idolatry and, uh, a, a, and, uh, and uh, blasphemy and Sabbath breaking and, and such things as that. So it's not about merely holding a different view, even a heretical view, but about how these things are published how they are uh, taken to others and maintained and so on. There, there's, there's, 
many different things to consider there. Also many scriptures showing these things in terms of the principles that the magistrate does have uh, a place with these, uh, does have a role in regard to these matters. So, in sum, there is this wonderful summary of the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. We're reminded that we, will, we all have a conscience. We will all answer to God uh, for, for our actions. We will answer to him. And so that's why we need to be going to the scriptures and testing all things by the scriptures. And uh, there are those authorities which God has established that we uh, are also to have a mind to. And the Lord help us to understand and rightly apply these things.